This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's bad enough when employees don't show up for work. For the Postal Service, it's a perpetual problem. Managers can plan and budget for vacations, even contingencies like sick days. But what about absent without leave or AWOL? This turns out to be a prickly management challenge. For some of the management lessons learned, we turn to the Postal Service's Deputy Assistant Inspector General, Jason Jovich. Mr. Jovich, good to have you on. Good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me. And you looked at the AWOL problem, and it turns out that it's somewhat smaller than perhaps the Postal Service managers are reporting, but it's still a problem. And let's talk about what it is you found with respect to their ability to classify people not being there for the right reason and therefore being able to manage it better. Well, first off, our objective in the audit was to assess how the Postal Service was managing employees in an AWOL status to identify opportunities to timely address employees in AWOL status and manage costs. And for background, AWOL employees, it's a non-pay status that results from a determination that no leave type, you know, including leave without pay, et cetera, can be granted either because the employee did not obtain advanced authorization or request leave that was denied. So these AWOL absences may be used as a basis for disciplinary action. And to accomplish our objective, we leveraged and analyzed nationwide employee leave data, including AWOL, from October 2017 through September 2020, and we visited 24 Postal Service sites. In each of the areas, we selected one Postal Service district with a high number of AWOL hours per person and another district with a low number of AWOL hours per person. This was to get a good representation of both situations. Sounds like you had a pretty good base of data then because that's a long period in a lot of people. We wanted to get a representation of the pre-COVID environment and also the environment that the Postal Service was dealing with during the pandemic. So yes, three years we felt was a good representation. All right. And what were your top line findings here then? So let me first say that we completely understand and recognize the challenges the Postal Service faced during the pandemic and applaud them for their efforts, especially during this time. With that said, we identified two areas for improvement to timely address employees in AWOL status and better manage costs. So first, there are opportunities for the Postal Service facility managers and supervisors to improve their management of AWOL employees. So specifically, they didn't always properly record AWOL hours. They used differing guidance on how to execute progressive discipline for employees, and they didn't always collect or retain the supporting documentation for employees in AWOL. So that's the first issue. And the second issue was management did not always include all AWOL employees' disciplinary and health benefit documentation in their personnel folders. About 90% of the sampled employees on extended AWOL did not have all the disciplinary actions or health benefit documentation in their folders. So that was a little difficult for us during the audit. So although the Postal Service has specific criteria detailing on which disciplinary and health benefit documents should be maintained, management retained some of the documentation in hard copy, and then some of it was electronic. So it was a bit of a mixed bag there. And the Postal Service personnel did not always monitor or verify whether all appropriate AWOL employees' disciplinary and health benefit documentation was actually uploaded to this folder. And management did not incorporate a timeline of these administrative actions for about 37% of the sampled employees after taking disciplinary actions. So the Postal Service did not have a specific policy on detailing what administrative actions needed to be documented. We're speaking with Jason Jovich. He's Deputy Assistant Inspector General at the U.S. Postal Service. And what is the extent in terms of man hours or payroll and so forth? What does this all cost the Postal Service every year? 
So the effect on postal service operations is a very good point and the crux of our audit too. So three main aspects. So first, as I stated earlier, whenever employees are on AWOL, their job responsibilities still need to be completed. So AWOL employees can affect a facility's overtime hours and employee morale and create additional work for other employees who are not absent and working. And this could lead to increased overtime for the Postal Service and other health and safety issues. Secondly, by not improving the management of AWOL employees, the Postal Service risks making procedural errors and wasting resources when trying to prepare and issue discipline letters to correct employee behavior. We estimated that the Postal Service paid nearly $3.8 million annually in health benefit premiums for employees who remain on extended AWOL status, which means longer than 60 calendar days. And lastly, when employee administrative actions and health benefit documents are not properly maintained, future disciplinary actions and health benefit enrollment and termination can be delayed, which also hinders the Postal Service. So when management does not document employee administrative actions, they may not be able to provide the support when these administrative actions are actually issued. And did it strike the Inspector General's office, did it strike you that there are too many people that are just simply walking off? Because that's when I think of AWOL, I think of something very different from, say, someone on disability or someone who maybe have gotten the COVID disease and calls in and says, you know, I'm going to be out for a couple of weeks. That would be, I presume, an excused not being on the job. That's a good point, and this has been an issue for the Postal Service over the years and the nature of their business, but also there was an increase during the COVID pandemic. So the issue of AWOL has been and probably will always be an issue for the Postal Service, but it is imperative that they are managing those employees in an AWOL status proactively. Right. So that means you have to document everything in a uniform way. And I wanted to get to that idea of the lack of uniformity and how things are dealt with and how people are communicated with from facility to facility. Aren't there national policies for that? There are overarching policies, but what we did find that there was inconsistent policies at the district and facility levels of how that was being actually implemented. So one of our recommendations is to review and ensure the disciplinary guidance is actually consistent for the Postal Service. And that is a challenge because of the nature of their business and dealing with labor relations and unions, et cetera, that there is a case-by-case basis aspect for disciplinary action. However, our audit emphasized the need for more consistent disciplinary guidance for its managers and supervisors. That was my next question. Is the way that the Postal Service deals with AWOL, is that part of the bargaining agreements that they have with the different unions? No. And that was not in the scope of the audit of looking about how the Postal Service has negotiated with the unions. That wasn't in the scope of this audit. Okay. And any other recommendations that you think are important here? Absolutely. We made a series of recommendations to strengthen the management of AWOL employees and promote operational efficiency and manage costs through the Postal Service. And this included clarifying policy on how to appropriately record for AWOL employees. As I said before, the review and ensuring disciplinary guidance is consistent, providing training for managers and supervisors to manage employees in an AWOL status, emphasizing the importance for managers to complete and timely review and maintain AWOL employee attendance, disciplinary and health benefit documentation, verify all appropriate AWOL employees' disciplinary and health benefit documentation is reviewed, and then lastly, ensure that guidance on the internal websites for all of the managers and supervisors is current and it's updated on a regular basis when appropriate, and ensure that the appropriate documentation is included in the employee personnel folders. I imagine if employees know that this is being tracked carefully and that the 
benefits would be correctly cut off exactly when they can be, that might even help reduce some of the AWOL problem. That is a good point. That would definitely be a contributing factor in improving this is the communication with the employees, understanding that the managers and supervisors are on top of this. Jason Jovich is Deputy Assistant Inspector General at the U.S. Postal Service. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure, thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? 
I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience? And to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often 
oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. A financial plan isn't just about money. It's about what matters most to you, like protecting your family, supporting your community, and building a legacy for future generations. At Northwestern Mutual, we start with a conversation about the life you want to live now and years from now. Whether you're paying down debt, saving for college, or planning for retirement, we have an eye on your bigger picture. Get access to our financial expertise at harlem.nm.com. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, headquartered in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast1 to learn more and start your free trial.